from the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verses 8 and 9. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, referring to the whole of the book of Revelation. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing me to the, showing them to me. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll. Worship God. In a very real sense, these verses are somewhat odd. Actually, I think they're incredibly odd. For what we have here as we move toward the end of the book of Revelation is the Apostle John becomes so confused, so out of sorts with himself, one suggesting that he was discombobulated, that what actually happens is he falls at the feet of an angel and begins to worship. You have to keep in mind that John has been taken on a tour by this angel through the entire book of Revelation. He has witnessed the glories of Jesus Christ. He has witnessed the ultimate triumph of our Lord and His church. And in the last few chapters, He has been granted the great privilege of gazing into the New Jerusalem, the heavenly city, what we call heaven. And because of the wonder of all that He has seen, and it's no excuse for it, he commits the sin of idolatry by falling at the feet of an angel and giving worship. And the angel says to John, don't do that. I am a fellow servant like you and all the prophets. Then the angel utters what is the last official commandment in Holy Scripture where he says, worship God. That is our theme this morning. We are engaged in a 40 days of prayer as a church. And on these Sunday mornings during that stretch of time, the various preachers of our church are looking at what we're calling essentials. What are the essential are distinguishing marks of a New Testament church. What is a church to major in? What are we to look like and what are we to sound like? And last Sunday we talked about prayer and today we talk about what it means to be a people who adore and praise God and express our gratitude to Him. 
And what we first of all learn in this passage is don't worship an angel, worship God. Don't worship idols or things or a person or even self, worship God. Don't ignore God or be indifferent toward God. And certainly don't you despise God, worship Him. He alone is worthy to receive the praise of those He saves. Now, if we are going to be a worshiping people, it is crucial that we have a simple and working definition of what worship actually is. And for the sake of time, I would like to summarize worship in a single sentence. Worship is praising God for His attributes and for His acts. You all know that the word worship in English is spelt W-O-R followed by the word ship, worship. Interestingly, in the Old English, the word was spelt and pronounced worth-ship. So that the word has to do with expressing to God His supreme value and His worth. When we worship God, we describe to Him the treasure that He is to us, His value as God, His worth as God. And the worth of God is revealed in Scripture by means of His divine perfections, His characteristics, what we call attributes. And in addition to that, the activity of God, those things that He has done, and those things that he continues to do that cause him to be worthy of our worship. When it comes to the attributes of God, he is sovereign and all-knowing and ever-present and all-powerful. He is justice as well as mercy. He is wrath as well as grace and love. He is faithful to his people and he is holy. That's who God is in terms of His divine attributes. And He also is an active God. His acts include the creation of the world, His saving of us and forgiving us of our sins through the Lord Jesus Christ. How He answers prayer is an activity of God. The fact that He keeps all of His promises to us and He is the God who will not let us go in terms of His redemptive love. He is the God who is always with His people, even in the midst of grieving and suffering. So worship is praising God for His glorious attributes and His great acts. Put differently, worship is ascribing to God who He is and what He has done and what He continues to do. And we are commanded to be a worshiping people. Do you remember what Jesus said to Satan? Be gone, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. And so the final command in the Bible is to be the highest activity a believer can engage in. And that is to worship 
God. To help us along these lines, I would like to use this sermon to structure for us a framework for thinking seriously about worship. The Bible teaches us a lot about worship, to be sure. But this framework is designed to help us think through what the Bible teaches us in the larger scope. And the first thing that we must realize is this. We are saved to worship. Worship is a mark of saving faith. What I mean by this is that if Jesus is truly your Savior and Lord, you will worship. If you have received the gospel and been forgiven of your sins so that you can rejoice that your name is written in heaven, you will want to worship God. It becomes the natural inclination of the saved person to give unto the Lord the glory that is due his name. One place where this is pictured for us in narrative form is found in the ninth chapter of John's gospel. There, a man who was born blind is greeted by Jesus. And we're told in that passage that for the glory of God the Father, Jesus healed this man from his blindness. But it was also at a time where there was very little popularity for Jesus. And as a consequence of this incredible miracle that brought glory to God, his parents rejected him. Even worse, the synagogue leaders kicked him out of synagogue worship, all because of the power of Christ. Later, the Lord Jesus is in the presence of this healed blind man yet again. And Jesus begins to talk to him about what it means for him to be the Son of Man, and more, more specifically, the Messiah, the Redeemer King who was to come into the world. And as this healed blind man listened, he believed. And there is this really remarkable statement in John 9 verse 38 where the healed man said, Lord, I believe. And then it says, he worshipped him. Because it is always true that praising God is the natural response to believing God and embracing the gospel of Christ. So that if there is no inclination in us to worship at all, it is a testimony of our lack of saving faith. There is a remarkable verse, I think, that helps us in our thinking along these lines. It's Hebrews 13, verse 15. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of the lips that openly profess His name. It's a remarkable verse encouraging us to praise God. 
and we're told, let us. And the us is all or all the redeemed people, the saved people, those who love Jesus and have been forgiven by him and belong to him. All of us are to praise God. And it says continually, meaning that a life of praise is to be habitual. We are to live a lifestyle of praise and worship. But the two most critical words in this verse are the first two, through Jesus. Beloved, there is only one way to God the Father. There is only one way of salvation. It is exclusively through the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, who came into our world, took our sin upon Himself, endured the just punishment owed us that we might be His worshipers forever. And those who come to the Father through Jesus are those who use their lips to offer a sacrifice of praise to God. And the point I am making is that while it is true that we are commanded by God to worship Him, it is equally true that his, as His redeemed people, it is what we do. It is the fruit of our salvation. It is the proof that we are His, and we are glad to worship Him. He has so inclined our hearts. This brings us to the second part of this framework. It is this, God is jealous for His worship. That's not a misstatement to apply jealousy to the essence of God's character. What does surprise us is that all too often we think of jealousy in terms of it being a grievous sin, a cruel and destructive sin among humans. And yet, with great regularity, the Bible ascribes jealousy to God. And so the question becomes, how can God be jealous when it's a vice for us? Well, if you think about it for a, a moment, the concept of love is a virtue. We are commanded to love God. We are told to love each other, and we love our families, and we love each other. For love is a virtue. But there is a kind of love that is sinful. It's mentioned in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, Love not the world, or the things that are in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Loving worldliness is wickedness. What about hatred, that primary vice? 
And yet the Bible says those who fear the Lord hate evil. That sort of hatred is virtuous. And the same is true with jealousy. Let me put it before you and then we'll talk about it. The verse is Exodus chapter 34 beginning with verse 13. Break down their altars. Smash their sacred stones. And cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god. For the Lord whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Far from being unworthy of God's essence, far from being a passing mood within God, jealousy is so associated with God that it is His name. His name is Jealous. What is significant about this, when it is applied to the character of God, it is a virtue. Among us, it's the green-eyed monster, a cruel sin. But in the character of God, it's a red-faced lover. And the reason why is because in the Scriptures, God has entered into a covenant, a relationship with His people. And the primary illustration in the Old Testament of that covenant relationship is that God is the husband and his people are his bride. And not one time, not two times, but 20 times in both the Old and the New Testament when it mentions the jealousy of God in every single case, his jealousy is provoked by the idolatry of those who are supposed to be faithful to him where we violate the rights of the covenant and we play the harlot. It's a serious metaphor in the Old Testament. And what we're being taught about worship is this. God will brook no rival suitor for for our affections and adoration for Him. And when we give our worship to that which is not God, when we bow down to the idols of the surrounding culture, when God does not have the place of supremacy, such idolatry arouses his jealousy. He deeply feels the pain of our betrayal. This past week, our elders have been taking us day by day, if you get the emails, and providing small moments before we read the passage. And this week, one of our elders wrote a sentence prayer that is simply magnificent. Let me read it for you. Father, Forgive us when we rob you of glory that only you deserve and put anything in priority over you. 
Because when we put someone in the place of supremacy over God, we do rob him of glory, of worship. Do you remember the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments? The first commandment is no other gods before you. The second commandment is no idols, bow down to no idols in worship. And that's when God adds, for the Lord your God is a jealous God. And it is our idolatry that provokes him to such an overwhelming emotion. So if you think about this framework, we are commanded to worship. Worship commanded, idolatry condemned. When God says in the Decalogue, you shall have no other gods before me, he doesn't mean you can have ten gods as long as he's the first one. Before me means before my face, in my presence, I alone am worthy of your exclusive worship. And that brings us to the third and perhaps the most significant statement on worship in the Bible was made by Jesus. And so the third part of this framework is that we are to worship God in the spirit and truth. Hear these words of Christ as though you were hearing them for the first time. John 4, beginning with verse 23, Yet a time is coming. And has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in the spirit and in truth. Don't quickly read past that word must. God is spirit and therefore he, his worshipers, must of necessity, worship him in the spirit and truth. The word may is not a synonym for must. This is a divine necessity, so that if you worship in spirit without the truth, or if you worship in truth without the spirit, or if you worship by your own regulations, whatever you are offering to God is not worship. It is to be in the Spirit and in truth. Now, there is something wonderfully unique about the translations here. I'm preaching from the NIV, the New International Version. It reads, we shall worship in the Spirit. The definite article is there, followed by the word Spirit that starts with a capital S. But if you are using virtually any other translation including the ESV. It reads, we must worship in spirit. The definite article isn't there, and the word spirit starts with a small s. What's going on here? It's good stuff. Because you see, when he says the spirit, the translators are telling us, oh, Jesus has the Holy Spirit in mind. But if it starts with a small s, the translators are trying to indicate that he's referring to the human spirit. Aren't you glad you have a pastor like me that can solve these difficulties? <laughs> so here's the answer. 
Yes. Both. Utterly necessary that it be so. By the way, if you study John's gospel, he frequently uses the principle of double meaning. And so here, John says we must worship by the Spirit. And so the first thing I want you to see is that God, the Holy Spirit, enables us to worship. That you can't and I cannot worship God without the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit who lives in believers, who loves to see Jesus glorified, is so at work in us that he inclines the hearts of his people to worship God. There's a verse that makes this undeniable, and it's found in Philippians 3, verse 3. Listen closely to the verse. For we are the circumcision. That word is a carryover from the Old Testament. That activity was a sign to identify the true people of God. So the true people of God, the truly saved, what is their activity? It says, who worship by the Spirit, who glory in or boast in Jesus So the distinguishing mark and proof of a truly converted person is that the Holy Spirit puts in us an inclination of heart to be a worshiping people. Secondly, God the Holy Spirit enables us to worship in spirit. That is from the totality of our inner person. Now bear with me. In the Bible there are there's a small list of words that are used interchangeably. My spirit, my heart, my soul. You remember the psalmist, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name as though he is saying, with all the energy I can muster, I want to bless the Lord. True worship is not yawning indifference. It is a heart that is in love with God and wants to worship him. Did you know one of the most tragic rebukes in all the Bible was leveled by Jesus against a people who thought they were worshiping the Pharisees. And in Mark chapter 7, verse 6, Jesus confronting them quotes from Isaiah the prophet, and he says this, You people, honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. In vain do you worship me. That their worship is empty worship. If it is lip only. But does not flow from the deep chamber. Of a redeemed human soul. And we come to the third truth. God the Holy Spirit enables us to worship. 
in truth. Jesus says your worship must be in the spirit. In spirit and in truth. And Jesus makes abundantly clear to us exactly where the truth can be found. You recall in John 8, he says, If the word of God abides in you, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That is free to know and love and serve and worship God. And then in John 17, verse 17, hours before his crucifixion, when Jesus prays for his people, he says, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. The place where the character of God, where his acts and his attributes are revealed to us, the place where truth is discovered is in the word of God. Oh, that we would remember this, that worship is not a matter of speculation. Worship is a matter of revelation. If we just speculate, if we just make up what we think is true about God, what we like about God, we will create a false God and turn ourselves immediately into idol worshipers. For we do not know the God of the Bible by means of his own self-revelation. Did you know one of the old Puritans, Stephen Sharnock, said, we cannot honor God as we ought unless we understand him as he is. Meaning we cannot bypass the word of God that he's given to us and expect our worship to be authentic. We are to know God as he has revealed himself in his word. And as we learn his worth and value and worthiness in his word, we can speak it or sing it back to God. Now, this truth is so crucial, I would quickly like to show you spirit and truth active in the life of a biblical worshiper. And the person I am thinking about is Mary, the mother of our Lord. There's a scene that happens just after she submits to the will of God and the Holy Spirit uh, causes her to become with child. And that one would be Jesus, the Messiah. And Mary takes a short journey to the home of Elizabeth, who is pregnant with John the Baptist. And when she arrives in the presence of her cousin, she sings her Magnificat. She sings a song of praise, celebrating God. She sings about the power of God, the mighty one. She sings how holiness is God's name. She sings twice about the mercy of God. And she sings about the covenant faithfulness of God as she celebrates his acts also. Listen for those things. Luke 1, beginning with verse 46. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. 
He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. And the fulfillment of his promise is, is a celebration of his faithfulness. Now, Mary did not worship with cold-hearted indifference. She worships from the depths of her soul. She says in these words, My soul glorifies the Lord. The other version reads, My soul magnifies the Lord. I see God is great and glorious, and I just relish in Him. And then she says, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. God has saved me. He's made me his own. I need not fear his just sentence of condemnation. I am his. He's my Savior. I rejoice. She's worshiping from her true inner person. But what about truth? Well, you could say that her song is true, but it's more than that. If you carefully study her psalm and trace it back to the Old Testament, this is the honest truth. She quotes and calls statements from Scripture from 16 different books of the Bible. She quotes from seven psalms, Genesis, Exodus, 1st and 2nd Samuel, Daniel, Ezekiel, and three minor prophets. She pillages from all over the Old Testament so that her heart is a treasury of truth. And she turns it into a song of praise. God, I want to celebrate you. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. And it's going to be consistent with who you really are as we are informed by the word of God. Now, there are probably a lot of ways to apply the sermon here at the end. I just want to choose one way. Almost every minister who loves the Word of God and the Gospel is aware of a true story of a pastor over 200 years ago who each Sunday was required to walk up 10 steps to get into the pulpit that was over his congregation. How I am grateful I only have two steps. And every Sunday this minister would go up to the steps. And his foot would hit the first step and he would say to himself, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Next step, I believe in the Holy Spirit. The next step, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And then as he ascended the steps, he would pray for the fullness and for the blessing and for the power of the Holy Spirit to enable him to preach the gospel and glorify Jesus. The reason I tell that story, what would it be like if as we get in our cars to come to church, as we are walking from the parking lot into the sanctuary, and as we move into the sanctuary, we say, perhaps under our breath or to another, 
I believe in the Holy Spirit. And that we ask the Holy Spirit to enable us to worship God acceptably and to listen to the Word of God to be changed by the Spirit. And that as we left, Holy Spirit, go with us into the week to love and to worship and to serve God. For we are a people who believe in worship because we believe in the Holy Spirit. Let us pray together. Eternal Father in heaven, thank you that you are one in eternal glory with the Son and the Spirit, ever three, ever one, for us in grace with the promise of glory someday. Enable us, O Holy Spirit, to glory in Christ Jesus and to put no confidence in the flesh. Remind us with great frequency and urgency that you command our worship and you condemn our idolatry. Make us a people who delight to give you the worship you deserve and the place of supremacy in our lives. Amen.